Welcome to Fair Talk, where we set out to provide enduring discussions on contemporary topics relevant to our economy, with particular emphasis on food, agriculture, and the environment. My name is Brady Deaton, Jr. of the Department of Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. I'll be your host. Today is November 17th, and we will be speaking to Emily Hamilton about her research on land regulation and its effect on affordable housing. Emily is a policy researcher at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and she has written on this topic widely, and we will actually be looking at a paper that she and her co-author, Sanford Ikeda, have written. A link to that article will be made available to you on the Fair Talk website. For those of you listening in, I, we will be talking because we are doing this podcast with Emily in a land economics course at the University of Guelph. Emily, welcome to Fair Talk. Thank you very much for having me. Emily, uh, I just want to begin, um, a lot of the listeners may not be familiar with the issues that we're going to talk about today, and part of our challenge is to kind of work through them, but if, if, if you got in an elevator uh, with a... Um, someone you didn't know, and you had, let's say, three floors. And they said, what's your, um, what's your research about? What's this paper that you've written about? Wh- what would you tell them in general? Sure. I'd say that a lot of well-intentioned regulations, such as uh, minimum lot sizes and maximum density rules, as well as newer smart growth regulations like urban growth boundaries or green belts, all restrict the supply of housing over what we would see uh, in a freer market. And the effects of this supply restriction of housing is felt most most uh, harshly by low-income people. And in our research, we look at the regressive effects of these regulations, how they hurt low-income people, and how they uh, reduce income mobility. All right. Now, sometimes I get on an elevator, and I might be with a planner, and they might say, and if I said something like that, my guess is the pushback would be, um, well, but land use planning is important. It stops conflicting land uses. It helps uh, perhaps planning for urban infrastructure in those areas, and it raises values uh, because it makes places a better place, makes places better to live in. What, what, what's your kind of general, now you're going down the elevator and you've got uh, <laughs> two floors. Yeah, I would say that there are plenty of justifications for many of these types of regulations. Um, People need places to park their cars, so planners require that landowners set aside areas for parking. Plenty of these regulations have uh, benefits, but their costs are often not considered or not considered sufficiently. So uh, in this environment, we tend to see over-regulation over what we'd see in an environment where planners consider the costs of these rules in addition to the benefits. All right, I should say we're going to be talking about affordable housing. Um, Most of your examples take place uh, in the paper that you've written. Most of the literature you're viewing are examples that take place in the United States. Uh, In Canada, we might define affordable housing as spending about 30% of your, or 30% or less of your income on housing. Is there a similar definition apply in the United States or is it? 
Yes, that's a widely considered rule of thumb in the United States. And when uh, housing is required to be affordable for a certain income level, the 30% rule is uh, what cities use to define affordable housing. And in terms of thinking about this differences among income groups, do you have a general sense of, say, what the, the, the poorest 20% pay in terms of uh, housing versus, say, the richest 20% or... So typically in the U.S., um, when city planners are looking at whether or not housing is affordable, they look at what's called the area median income. And so that's the median income defined uh, typically at the zip code level. So it varies very widely across parts of the U.S. and across cities. So in some places, households earning over $100,000 per year would be eligible for affordable housing because they're income level is low relative to others in their immediate neighborhood. Uh, I was looking at some of the uh, data on this in Canada, just kind of preparing, and I found one, uh, and, I'll, and I'll provide a link to this as well because it seems quite high, but the Global News was reporting that, and I think I'll get this about right, that, that the poorest 20% in Canada pay high, more than 50%. Uh, of their income on housing, and of course that's a, there's a drastic difference for uh, the reasons you mentioned in terms of the, the wealthiest 20% uh, pay about 16% of their income on shelter. So the issue of affordable housing and the effects that uh, we're about to talk about um, really do uh, matter perhaps differently to different groups. And Definitely. What we're going to do now is I'm going to turn the questions um, for the remainder of this podcast over to students. And we're just going to try to walk through initially just understanding some of the specifics. Uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the paper was all the specific examples of land regulation and zoning. And so uh, I'm going to turn it over to the students who will ask a question. There will be time for a follow-up, and we'll just proceed like that. Great. Hi, Emily. Um, in your paper, you mentioned exclusionary zoning. Uh, could you give us a bit of an example or a background on what this is uh, and its effect on housing affordability for low-income households? Sure. Exclusionary zoning is a term um, that people use to describe zoning rules that are implemented with the intent of limiting who can live in a neighborhood. So, for example, uh, rules that prevent any multifamily housing, like apartment buildings, being built within a neighborhood could be considered exclusionary zoning. If uh, households can't afford to rent or purchase a whole house, then they'll be excluded from a neighborhood entirely. Other types of minimum of exclusionary zoning rules include minimum lot sizes, and this was probably the first type of exclusionary zoning rule that was labeled as such. And um, New Jersey townships have been some of the um, most studied areas for minimum lot sizes. And some townships there actually implemented minimum house sizes that were larger than the current average house size. So they're basically saying, in the future, only people who are on average wealthier than we are here are going to be able to move in, uh, preventing low-income people from moving into the townships with those rules. Good morning, Emily. Uh, I was interested in your discussion of inclusionary zoning. Could you briefly dis explain and describe what inclusionary zoning is and your findings regarding its capacity to address affordable housing challenges? 
Yeah, inclusionary zoning is a policy that's in the U.S. has been tried in many different types of municipalities, and it varies um, how it's implemented. But in general, developers are either incentivized to provide uh, housing that's at a below market rate by uh, either subsidies or um, changes in regulations that allow them to build more housing if they include inclusionary zoning in their project. And what it does is um, it sets a price cap on the cost of housing, but only for some units within a development. So for example, an apartment building of 100 apartments might be required to have 20% of those apartments affordable to people who are earning, say, 50% of the area median income. And inclusionary zoning sounds like a great idea because it's making housing more affordable to people who make less money than many of their neighbors. And it also can make neighborhoods more diverse than um, what they would be in a completely free market, which uh, many people argue benefits everyone to have a, a diverse neighborhood. But the problem with inclusionary zoning is that it changes what type of housing is going to be built. So if 20% of the apartments in a new building have to be rented at a lower than market rate, the other 80% of those apartments are going to tend to be very expensive luxury apartments so that the developer can um, subsidize the below market apartments with those high rents on the other um, apartments. And another problem with inclusionary zoning is it typically provides very few units of affordable housing. So inclusionary zoning alone is certainly not enough to address the affordability problem in many expensive cities. Hi, Emily. Uh, you touched already a little bit on minimum lot size zoning. Um, is there any way you can just explain exactly what minimum lot size zoning is and how it affects uh, housing prices and specifically housing affordability? Great question. So a minimum lot size rule might say that, for example, every house in a neighborhood has to be built on at least a quarter acre of land. Uh, so that's setting a, a floor on how much housing, uh, how much land must be dedicated to each house. So um, if land is expensive, it's going to directly make housing more expensive as compared to allowing houses to be built on say an eighth or a tenth of an acre of land. Morning, Emily. Um, I found your discussion on the effects of parking requirements to be uh, thought-provoking. Could you give us a brief summary of your findings as well as the research pertaining to it? Sure. Uh, so in the U.S., uh, the vast majority of cities and municipalities require developers to build a certain amount of parking with their development, whether that's housing, retail, or commercial um, development. And the justification for this is that when um, automobiles first became common, there really wasn't any accommodation for where people would leave them when they left their cars. So big cities started seeing problems with double parking and people just leaving their car in the street when they went inside a store to run an errand. Uh, so obviously that was impeding movement and causing a lot of traffic problems. Um, the problem is that Many cities require um, parking to be built above what we would see in a free market, and these requirements have big costs for 
uh, developers that are then passed on to renters or home buyers. Donald Shoup is a professor at the University of California in Los Angeles, and he has done an incredible amount of research on the effects of parking regulations. And he found that within Los Angeles, parking requirements can add over $100,000 to the cost of a condo uh, in Los Angeles. So that's obviously a very substantial cost to home buyers um, or renters that uh, could be lessened if apartment buildings or condo buildings were allowed to be built with less parking than what's currently required. Emily, from what you've already said, I'm kind of getting a sense of what you mean by possibly over-regulating in some areas. One of the last places that we're interested in looking at, which we're actually experiencing around the greater Toronto area, is this idea of urban growth boundaries. Could you talk about the urban growth boundary around Portland, Oregon? and uh, what what that effect is. Yeah, um, so the state of Oregon requires that all cities create urban growth boundaries. And what these boundaries do is preserve land at the outskirts of cities as agricultural land that can't be developed um, for housing. And several studies have been done on the Portland area because that's the most famous and um, most binding urban growth boundary in the United States. And uh, they found that land outside the boundary sells for less than land inside the boundary. So uh, that finding means that the boundary is making um, land inside the boundary that can be developed for housing more expensive than it otherwise would be, in turn driving up the cost of housing. And I believe that uh, Toronto's green belt works pretty similar to the um, Oregon urban growth boundary requirements. Hello. In your paper, you cite a study in which the authors claim that a reduction in zoning regulations in three cities, um, New York, San Jose, and San Francisco, could increase GDP in the United States by 9.5%. Could you explain the relationship between zoning regulations, labor movement, and economic growth? Sure. Um, yeah, so the study that you mentioned is by economists Shea and Moretti, and it's been um, widely cited and a very influential study within urban economics. And as you said, what they do is they look at what would happen if the three most productive cities in the U.S., so San Jose, San Francisco, and New York City, reduce the burden of their land use regulations down to the level of the median city in the United States. So they're not looking at what would happen if these cities got rid of um, zoning entirely, but just reduce the effect of their current zoning rules and allowed more housing to be built. And they find that if that happened in their alternative universe, um, that many more people would be moving into these most productive cities to pursue jobs where they can be more productive and earn higher incomes. Um, and in turn, this would um, result in, a, as you said, 9.5% increase in U.S. GDP. Uh, and that's a huge. That comes out to, I believe, about $1.5 trillion each year. And it's important to note that not all of the benefits of that higher GDP would be going to the people who live in those productive cities, but it would be shared um, with all Americans and with people in other countries also, because as um, people 
in those most productive cities are able to produce um, better products, um, new software, um, and other types of new innovations, everyone would benefit from those innovations, not just the people who are able to um, get those higher income jobs in those cities. So I'm Bridget, and I was really interested in your point on historical designations. Uh, in your paper, you mentioned that historical designations are correlated with uh, higher housing prices, but also that it's difficult to determine if the designation causes the higher prices or if the houses in wealthier neighborhoods are just more likely to be designated as historical. And uh, given this uncertainty, I was wondering if you would say that these regulations are a uh, significant factor in restricting affordable housing? Uh, great question. Um, so what you mentioned is what's called an endogeneity problem. So economists have a hard time figuring out whether or not um, historical preservation causes higher housing prices or whether higher housing prices draw people who are likely to fight for historical um, designations for their properties. In many cases, um, in say small cities uh, in the US, historical preservation probably has a very minimal effect on housing prices. But in some of the most expensive places, it probably has a large effect. So within Manhattan, uh, I believe over a quarter of properties are designated as historically preserved um, properties, what's called landmarked in New York City. Um, so that's taking basically a quarter of the land off of uh, the island and saying this is the amount of building supply that's going to be available forever. It's never going to be able to increase with demand. So in that case, um, it, it's pretty clear that historical preservation does have an effect on house prices. Uh, and some studies in New York City specifically have been able to find that result empirically. Um, but in, in many other places where just a few buildings are preserved and perhaps those are the buildings that genuinely have the greatest uh, historical significance, it's probably having a very minor effect. Hi, Emily. Uh, I actually have a very similar question with, uh, I guess, just more of a broader scope. I was wondering about, um, I mean, you mentioned that there's problems inferring causality between the relationship between high levels of regulation and high house prices. So I'm more interested just in general without um, pertinence to the uh, historical preservation sites. Um, how do you deal with this problem that it might be high housing prices and the uh, residents of those houses that may cause high levels of regulation rather than the other way around, like you argue? Yeah, so there have been a couple of very clever research designs that have um, looked to address that question. One example is uh, the economist Edward Glazer looked at uh, land sales in uh, the Boston area, and he found that uh, he adjusted for um, – land qualities to try to compare apples to apples among land that is already approved to have housing on it versus land in a very in the same neighborhood that's the same size that doesn't have any approvals in place and he found very substantial price differences indicating that uh, having those approvals in place causes uh, land to be more valuable than land that doesn't have those approvals in place. So he's attempting to um, create a natural experiment there, and uh, that's one of the convincing studies on causality. Hello. In your opening pitch, you mentioned that the benefits of zoning at the local community are often considered without the costs. Um, 
to people either in that community or outside of it. Um, are there any situations, though, in which the net effect of zoning regulation can result in an, an improvement in well-being for that community by either reducing uh, congestion or in, which, in situations in which uh, someone's land use might negatively impact their neighbor? Uh, that's certainly an argument that's made uh, in favor of zoning. And Houston is a famous example in the United States of a city that uh, doesn't have any uh, Euclidean-style zoning, which is rules that say only housing can be built in this neighborhood and only industrial uses can be uh, built in a separate area of the city. And people argue that Houston suffers because there are cases where, say, you have a bar near a school or something um, where they say that the world would be better off if these uses um, were further apart. Um, I haven't looked specifically at um, cases where uh, the benefits of zoning might outweigh the costs, but I will say that Houston has been um, very impressive in its ability to uh, increase its housing supply as demand for housing has increased there, maintaining um, housing affordability, and also it's uh, become much denser. So. Um, people are building more apartment buildings and uh, smaller single-family homes uh, to accommodate the large number of people because of the regulatory flexibility that they have there. Uh, you, you mentioned Euclid zoning. Uh, where, where does that term come from? It comes from uh, the town of Euclid, Ohio. And um, what, the, what Euclid, Ohio had done is they implemented rules that said, this area of the city can only be used for single-family housing. And a developer who owned um, land that was designated as single-family housing had been planning to build, I believe, uh, an apartment building on um, that spot. And so he sued the city and said that the rule that he couldn't put that land to what he saw as its highest value use was what's called a regulatory taking. So the city was taking away his property value by limiting what he could do on it. Um, the case ended up going to the U.S. Um, Supreme Court, and uh, that's where the term Euclidean zoning comes from, from that Supreme Court case. And uh, the court held that under city's um, police powers, they are allowed to designate certain types of land as only um, permitting certain types of uses. I want to just uh, take a pause uh, for a minute and see if students have other questions about the particulars of zoning. We're going to move on, Emily, and start to have a discussion about the policy issues that you raise right. in your paper. But first, let me just take a break and look around the room and see if there is anybody that would like to ask a follow-up question in this category. Or Emily, I don't know if you want to add anything about a particular uh, zoning use that you think is important for our listeners to think about that uh, we haven't uh, touched on yet. Um, I think that um, the questions have already covered um, many of the most important rules that we discuss. I would uh, just point out that these rules interact with each other. So um, looking at uh, Portland's Oregon um, urban growth boundary, for example, it's not the case that developers can build anything they want inside the growth boundary, but rather there's this growth boundary and then there are also uh, parking requirements and minimum lot sizes and other rules about um, how much housing can be built. So um, we can't look at just one rule in isolation, but we have to think of them as interacting. All right. With that, I'm going to turn it over to the next student to ask a question. 
Great. Hi, Emily. Uh, your paper suggests a number of policies that communities might support to augment the supply of housing and thus lower prices. Could you explain one that you think is the most promising? Yeah, uh, the one that I think is um, definitely the most interesting and perhaps the most promising is a policy idea developed by David Schleicher, who's a law professor at Yale. And he uh, has an idea for what he calls tax increment local transfers or tilts. And his idea is that when a large development is built, it is going to increase the city's property tax base. So if you go from a block of single family homes to a block that's covered in huge apartment buildings, the total amount of um, property value that cities are able to tax is going to increase substantially. And the difference between that um, new value and the old value when it was just single family homes is called a tax increment. And Schleicher suggests that uh, because the new denser development is going to impose costs on people who live near it, uh, because the new um, apartment residents will be causing much more traffic, uh, perhaps the single family homeowners nearby just don't like looking at big apartment buildings, um, that part of this increment could be shared with the property owners who live near the new development. So in a sense, um, this would be like buying off the single family homeowners opposition to new development. Uh, and it would also be compensating them for allowing denser development in their neighborhood. Is any, is any, is any location actually trying that right now? Is, has that been tried? Yeah. No, I don't believe it's been tried at all. So at this point, it's just a, a purely theoretical idea. Um, some cities do require um, developers to provide community benefits that um, act in some ways similarly. So, for example, um, if a developer is approved to build a new um, apartment building, they might also have to put money toward a new park or a swimming pool in the neighborhood. Um, but there's an important difference between tilts and these community benefits because while both uh, buy off opposition to the new development, um, the community benefit acts as a tax on the development. So it will result in fewer, fewer um, housing units being built uh, because the developer has to pay for that extra benefit. Whereas the tilt um, would be coming from um, the city tax revenue. So it wouldn't tax development, but it would um, benefit uh, people who are opposed to new development. All right, it'll be interesting to see that play out. All, yeah. all of these students can research the effects of that. Yeah. Um, here's the next student. Yeah, so as we continue to consider alternatives, um, to bring it back to this idea of the urban growth boundary around Portland, Oregon, and then as you brought up the, um, uh, the green belt around Toronto, um, what are some alternatives to urban growth boundary um, zoning policies still to protect um, prime agricultural farmland? Yeah, um, well, one thing that uh, both the U.S. and Canada have in common is that um, we have tons of open space in our country. So that's a great benefit that uh, both of our countries have, and it might be worth considering whether a shortage of farmland is really a policy issue. I should ca caveat that I'm much less familiar with Canada. I don't know um, how far north 
within Canada is considered farmland, um, but within the U.S. at least, we really have plenty of, of farmland. So preserving um, farmland around urban areas is not necessarily a policy goal that we need to be concerned about in the U.S. Um, but at the same time, policymakers who do want to preserve farmland near cities could look at the regulations they have in place that are preventing cities from becoming denser. So if there's a high demand in a city for um, high-rise housing or simply smaller single-family homes that take up less space or have smaller yards, allowing that type of denser development to be built would reduce pressure for cities to expand outward. So that's one thing that Houston's really demonstrating is that over time it's becoming denser. Um, and it is certainly um, uh, growing outwards also but uh, part of its population growth is being absorbed into a denser city. Maybe to follow up on that idea, um, one of the benefits of being close to a city for farmers is the, the access to the market. Is there value in looking at more diffusive development? So possibly instead of developing large metropolitan areas, shifting some of that development into other cities? Um, there may, there certainly could be benefits um, to having farms close to cities. That's really not a topic that I've looked at in any depth at all. But I would say that policies that try to shift people from one city to another can have many consequences um, in terms of allowing people to live in the labor market where they can be most um, productive. So jumping back to the Shea and Moretti study on productivity that we talked about a little earlier, uh, if you're preventing people from living in the highest productivity cities and instead requiring them to live in lower productivity cities, that's going to have costs in terms of output and income mobility and uh, economic growth over time. I think that many would agree with your assessment of how much open space and how much farmland there is. I always use this idea that if you, get, if you go to Pearson Airport um, and you fly west, you're going to be mostly looking down at a lot of open space. But the right. majority of people, and the disconnect, I think, between how much open space there is and perceptions of development, the 80% of the people live in these urbanizing areas at the fringe of where development's taking place. And so that's always, there is this you know, general tension, we run into it here at the University of Wealth between what the numbers look like in farmland, let's say, uh, over the last 10 years, and people's perception of that transformation zone. Right, and, and access to um, open outdoor spaces is certainly um, a benefit to be considered of policies that do require some sort of open space, whether that's parks or um, agricultural land, um, having that close to cities certainly has benefits, as well as uh, the costs that we've talked about. Um, there's a couple of the questions. Uh, students might have a, just a follow-up or a general interest question. Let me move to uh, one student. Um, hi again, Emily. Sorry. So as we're talking about policies, uh, you had a policy recommendation for addressing historical designations, uh, which was a quota on historical designations. Um, I didn't really see a whole lot of detail. Of course, that's not the sole focus of your paper, but could you maybe explain like how you might set that quota or um, how you think it would work in practice? 
Sure. Um, so that's another idea that came from Ed Glazer. And um, as far as how to set the quota, that's certainly um, a question that would have to be debated and would have to vary depending on the size of the city and um, the historical importance of the city in question. Um, but as we talked about earlier, uh, some cities, like to take Manhattan as an example, have just a huge number of buildings that are preserved. And many of the preserved buildings are similar to other buildings that are preserved, and they're perhaps not that historically important. So if we have um, a million townhomes that are preserved, perhaps we could do with fewer of those um, townhomes being um, designated as, as landmarked. So what he suggests is say, um, just, to, just to make up a, a number, say that um, the number of landmark buildings is going to be capped at half of what it currently is. And that cap would force uh, both policymakers and um, historical architecture experts to work together to say which of these buildings that are preserved are really the most important. So um, Grand Central Station in New York City, that's not going to be up for demolition. That's a very important architecturally and historically, so we definitely want to keep that one on the rolls. But maybe um, some of these uh, apartment buildings from the 20s, we have hundreds of them preserved. So let's just uh, preserve the best examples of um, that architectural style and allow the rest to be redeveloped to meet housing needs. So basically, the the um, landmark cap just forces those trade-offs to be made rather than saying that as much can be preserved as could possibly have historical benefit. Um, just to follow up on that question, how do you think uh, defining that cap would go about? I'm, I'm hoping that it wouldn't just be an arbitrarily defined number such as half of the existing um, preservations, right? I, so how, how would be a good way of actually defining that, where to cap the amount of historical sites? Um, I, don't, I don't have a good answer for how to set that cap. Um, uh, British Columbia in Canada um, did a regulatory cap that might be an example to look at for people who were interested in uh, historic landmarking caps. Uh, and I believe what they did was they set a cap on the total number of rules that could be in place and and set a one-in, one-out policy that would be the same for a landmarking cap. So uh, if a new building is landmarked, then something that um, was landmarked previously would have to go off the um, landmarked list. But determining the exact number of buildings that could be landmarked, uh, it's something that I think would just have to be determined politically uh, and through political debate. I, I didn't know that, and I just want to say I'm, I'm learning a lot in this podcast. We're coming nearer to an end, but um, that, that's a great uh, point, one that uh, we will definitely be looking at in future Land Econ classes. Great. Um, hello again. Um, you've mentioned how a lot of these policies came to be. Um, I was just wondering if if they reduce uh, the benefits or net benefits for a community, why do they have so much uh, stay in power? These uh, policies have a ton of support typically from community residents because it's often the current property owners who are benefiting from these rules. Um, the economist uh, William Fischel at Dartmouth calls this constituency that's 
in support of these rules home voters. So they're homeowners in a city who um, vote in the interest of preserving their home value. Now, this is completely rational, um, and it makes sense why homeowners tend to be very concerned about their home value since it's a huge part of their, um, their wealth, typically. Uh, but uh, because um, the only people who are voting on or whose interests are represented in land use policy discussions already live in the community, obviously, where they're able to vote, the people who don't live in that community aren't represented at all. So, uh, for example, San Francisco land use policy reflects the interests of current people who live there, but it takes into account um, none of the interests of all the college graduates all around, all around the world who would want to move to San Francisco to pursue um, jobs in the tech industry if they were able to afford housing there. All right. I think we have time for about two more questions. So, Hi. I imagine there is a great deal of uncertainty associated with the implementation and commitment to zoning in any community. Do you have any thoughts on the extent to which uncertainty surrounding zoning practices may influence housing supply and the associated prices? Oh, that's a great question. Um, it's not something that I have looked into, but um, there certainly is uncertainty when these rules are implemented in that people may not foresee their long-run effects. Um, so, for example, um, Parking requirements are often set uh, based on standards that come out of uh, an organization called the Texas Transportation Institute here in the U.S., and they just uh, come up with general suggestions for um, this is how many parking spots a house needs, this is how many parking spots each apartment needs uh, within a development, or this is how many parking spots a fast food restaurant needs. And cities then implement these rules and may end up with tons of excess parking. So in plenty of um, areas in the U.S., if you drive by a strip mall, you'll just see a sea of parking that is never fully occupied. Um, so when the rules were implemented, planners probably thought, you know, we're just doing what's right and um, creating enough parking. But it's not until time passes that they're able to see the unintended consequences of their rules. Um, so uh, I would suggest that uncertainty should uh, give planners um, reason to regulate perhaps less than they think they need to at first to see how the, that level of regulation plays out. And our last questioner. Hi, Emily. I'd be interested to know how you became interested in this relationship between zoning and housing prices and what inspired you to become a policy researcher in this area? Yeah, uh, when I was in college, I worked as an intern in the planning department of my hometown in Colorado, and I uh, just took that internship because it was available, not because I had any underlying interest in urban planning. But through that internship, I was exposed to the work of Jane Jacobs, who's written some very famous books about cities and how land use policy affects urban development. And I became uh, very, very interested in the topic and ultimately went to um, graduate school to study urban economics and um, want to um, just continue working in this area um, as much as I can. Emily Hamilton, thank you for sharing your thoughts and doing the research uh, that you're doing. Um, we really appreciate it.
thank you very much. It was a great discussion. Thanks for joining us at Fair Talk. We hope you will continue to check our website for updates and the latest podcasts.